We have now Micah chapter 6. Micah 6, where God indicts the people and reminds them of what he expected of them. But mostly it's an indictment and a declaration of their impending punishment because of their sins. Verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam son of Beor answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord, and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is, the, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, what has, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence, her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins." You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil, and the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed, and in their devices you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Amen. In verse 1, Micah the prophet addresses the people about what God is saying. These are words of God. Hear now what the Lord is saying. And what is the Lord saying in verse 1? He's telling Micah, Micah is likely the addressee, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the mountains hear your voice. Micah is told to preach there, and also even in verse 9, 6, 9, not only to the mountains and the hills, likely the rural parts, but also in the city, verse 9, the voice of the Lord will call to the city. Both in the country and in the city, Micah the prophet is to preach against the sins of the people, the voice of God. What God says in verse 1 is the same as the voice of the Lord in verse 9. What Micah says is what God says. 
This should not be a surprise to us because he declared on his own in 3.8, in chapter 3, verse 8, On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage, to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Micah is a self-aware, he knows that he is a prophet of the Lord, inspired by the Spirit of the Lord to preach the word of the Lord. Now, in verse 1, we said that mountains and hills is likely a reference to the countryside. And why would he preach there before them and to them? Why would he preach there so that the mountains and hills here? What would they do on the mountains? What would they do on the hills? They would build their altars. They would build their idols there. They would go up to the hills and to the high places. The high places are called high places because they were situated. The shrines were situated on mountains and hills, the high places, in order for the people to worship their idols. Now, the indictment for their idolatry is what Micah is explaining here. He preaches against those places, those locations, not because the mountains themselves are bad or wrong, but because of what's done on the mountains. And it's a reference to their worshiping idols in those localities. Um, Then, verse 2. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people, even with Israel, he will dispute. In verse 1, it's a case that must be pled. In verse 2, it's the indictment of the Lord, a case, the Lord's case, a lawsuit or case, and his dispute. These are all legal terms that God has used to say he is the judge of heaven and he's ready to announce his indictment. An indictment also has to do with the law court where the lawyer lists the sins of the criminal. He committed these three crimes or he committed these 13 crimes. These are the crimes you judge and all you witnesses, you need to take notice of what this criminal has done because he deserves to be punished. Whatever the law requires of his criminal acts, it must be meted out to him. He must receive the sentence of justice. And that's what God has against his people. God, therefore, is announcing in advance the sins of the people that they might prepare for the judgment of God. That is the pattern of Scripture. God announces what his expectations are, and what people deserve if they don't live up to those expectations. This started in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of it, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the sentence against the criminals who would partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God explains exactly who he is, what his expectations are. He's the lawgiver, and he's the judge of all transgressors of the law. This is something that is sorely missing in the life of the church. People in church, they don't think about the judgment of God. They don't think of God as judge. They think of him as father and really as grandfather. Grandfather who has a pocket full of candy and a lot of toys, extra money in the bank, to spend on the grandchildren to buy toys and candy. 
That's the way they look at God. But that's not the way God is. He's not that way in the Old Testament, as we see here. And he's not that way in the New Testament. Not that way at all. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, 30 to 31. Acts 17, 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Christ is appointed by God to be the judge of the world, and everybody better repent and get ready for that day. Romans 14, Romans 14, 10 to 12, 14, 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. It is actually the Lord Jesus who is a wrathful Lord. Have we thought about Christ having wrath? Or do we just think of God the Father as wrathful? Revelation 6, Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Revelation 6, 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the wrath of the Father and the Son, here called Lamb? Have we ever conceived of a a Lamb who has such indignation that he will punish his adversaries? The Bible uses that irony The Bible uses that irony of putting a lamb and his wrath together. The wrath of the lamb. Lambs are not just cute and cuddly, huggable to put on your lap, especially when they're small. That's not the way the Bible is picturing this lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not Christ. He's not that way. Let's also see Revelation 19. Revelation 19, this judge... Christ and what he does. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. 19, 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. In righteousness he judges and wages war. Who is the he? We'll see. Verse 12. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is this on the white horse? It's Christ. 
We see that from verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. And in verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, of the Father. And in verse 16, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is this wrathful king on the white horse. He's a kingly lamb or lamb-like king. That's who Christ is. And he will punish on the day of judgment. Well, they are to prepare for it in Micah's case. He's preparing the people to repent. Well, their ingratitude, their numbness, their insensitivity, their hardness of heart is displayed in verses 3 to 5 or explained in verses 3 to 5 in reference to God's grace. In verses 3 to 5, God's grace, His abundant grace, did not move them, did not motivate them, did not soften their heart to repent. We're talking about His grace and how He blessed them, what He did for them. That kind of grace did not move them to repent. Verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. God's saying, what in the world did I do? How have I become a burden to you? Why do you look at me as a burden? Verse 4, what did he do? Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. Didn't I redeem you? You all were slaves and you had nothing. You were desperate. You were crying out to me and you wanted to be released and you were released. Further, verse 4, And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He gave them these three leaders, two men and one woman. Moses and Aaron, they were prophets. And Miriam, a prophetess. From Exodus 15, 20, we know she was a prophetess. These were brothers and sister. Aaron, the firstborn, then Moses, um, Miriam, we don't know her age. Probably she was the oldest, but we don't know her, her age exactly. She was certainly older than Moses because she was the one who suggested in Exodus 2 to Pharaoh's daughter, can I find a nurse for you to take this baby that you found in the Nile so that the nurse might raise the child for you? And so... Moses' sister went and found her mother so that she could take care of Moses, her son, without Pharaoh's daughter knowing that. Or maybe later she knew about it, but whatever, at that time, she arranged for Moses' mother to take care of him. So in that way, we know she was older than Moses, and Aaron was older than Moses. So, three years older. So likely Miriam was the firstborn. But in this case, we have three prophets sent to the people, to lead the people. They had no lack of leadership. They had no lack of the word of God. They had no lack of the grace of God, making a clear distinction between them and the people, the the people of Egypt. Further, verse 5, My people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, And what Balaam son of Baor answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Not only in Egypt, but also in the wilderness. In the wilderness, 
Balak, the pagan, foreign, evil king of Moab, and Balaam, whom he hired, he hired Balaam, who was a diviner, a sorcerer. He was um, an unbelieving pagan um, who practiced witchcraft. That's what he was. And he was hired to curse Israel. But God didn't allow that to happen. All the while they were wandering, all the period that he tried from this place, Shittim, this uh, town or village, Shittim, to the town of Gilgal, from there to there. All that while, when he tried, God prevented it from happening. God protected his own people, Israel, and did not allow any curses to fall on Israel. The righteous acts of the Lord. In this regard, first, let's look at the mercy of God or the abundant grace of God. In Isaiah 5, let's compare Micah 6.3 with Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Now, mind you, we are talking about those blessings that are not salvific blessings, meaning he didn't send the spirit of grace in them to regenerate them. He gave them all kinds of other things on the outside, external things. He blessed them in those ways. That's what we have here. Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my, well-beloved, of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it. Also, um, he, and also he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. God did everything that was necessary for the vineyard, but it didn't produce any good grapes. So he says, I'm going to get rid of the vineyard now. It's time to destroy it and get rid of it. And what is it that they produced? What were the bad grapes or rotten fruit that they produced? He says in 7, bloodshed and distress. They should have had justice and righteousness, but they had bloodshed and distress. Distress because of the miseries of sin and the violence of the people. Now, in the New Testament, Luke 16 This same phenomenon of people receiving blessings 
but being ungrateful and unmoved so that they don't repent and believe in the gospel is a New Testament concept too. Luke 7, 21. Luke 7, 21 to 23. 7, 21 to 23. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All good, right? Well, notice, why would he say this in verse 23? And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. After all of those good deeds in verses 21 to 25, why would anybody stumble over Christ? Wouldn't their hearts be moved? No, not a lot of the people. A lot of the people stumbled over Christ. They refused to believe in him. Luke 16 in Luke 16, 19 to 31, the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, 19 to 31. You know that the rich man lived a wonderful, comfortable life. He died and went to Hades. He's in torment, in agony in Hades. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. He's not in torment. He's in happiness with Abraham. Well, the rich man's Blessings, material blessings, did not motivate him, did not soften his heart to believe in the gospel. He refused to repent. The rich man's physical blessings would not. But notice also in 27, Luke 16, 27, what else will not motivate? Luke 16, 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. This miracle, this spiritual miracle, rising from the dead, that also won't soften hearts. Material blessings, spiritual blessings, may not soften the heart. They don't often soften the heart. That's why God says, What have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. The moment you open your mouth and you say something, you are indicted. Well, you didn't do this. Well, then God will say, yes, I did. This is what I, all I did. There's no excuse, in other words. Okay, then this delivery from Egypt, deliverance from Egypt. Exodus 19, that's in Micah 6, verse 4. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. What was the reason God reminded him, them of that? Why did God remind the people that he... Ransom them, he delivered them from Egypt. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. This is why. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. In verse 4, God repeats what he just did for them. Just a couple of months ago, or three months ago, how he delivered them from Egypt. You witnessed it. You all saw it. That's verse 4. That's God's grace in verse 4. Well, after God's grace, what should they have known? They should have known, according to verses 5 and 6, to obey God, to be rightfully called the people of God. Yes, I call you my people now, but if you want to be my people in truth, if you want to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, then you must obey me. After grace, after God showers his grace, he expects us to follow him, to obey him. That's the pattern here in Exodus 19, 4 to 6. This is actually also at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Then God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he cites the first commandment, or announces the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the sequence. You know how gracious I've been to you, Now, this is what I expect of you. This pattern is also a New Testament pattern. If you study the structure of some of the letters of the New Testament, such as Romans, what does Paul the Apostle do in Romans 1 to 11? Does he speak of theology or morality in Romans 1 to 11? He speaks of theology. That is, what has God done for us, we who were undeserving, we, were her, we who were filthy and lowly, of no repute because of our sins, Romans 1 to 3. What did he do for us in Christ, Romans 3 to 11? He explains all that, right? He explains his grace toward us. Therefore, what's next? Chapters 12 to 16 of Romans. 12 to 16, what he expects of us. Just like Exodus 19, 5 and 6, what he expects of us, then we will truly manifest that we are his people. The same with Ephesians. Ephesians 1 to 3, God's grace, what he did for us in Christ. Then Ephesians 4 to 6, what he expects of us. Colossians 1 to 2, what he's done for us. Colossians 3 to 4, what he expects of us, how we should obey him. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 to 12, all that God did for us. It's all full of theology. Hebrews 1 to 12. Very little is there about obedience or what obedience looks like. But when he gets to chapter 13, the very last chapter of the book of Hebrews, then he tells us what obedience looks like. Let love of the brethren continue. Show hospitality to strangers. Do not commit adultery, murder. Do not have the love of money. Correct? Obey your leaders. That's what he says there in chapter 13. But otherwise, he's been talking theology the whole time. Hebrews 1 to 12. The proper sequence is understanding God, understanding us, understanding our redemption, what he's done for us, 
And the outflow of that, the evidence of true faith in what God has done for us, is the way we live. The people should have known that because he delivered them from Egypt. He gave them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He even delivered them from these two wicked men in verse 5. Let's see now evidence that he delivered them from this wickedness of verse 5. Micah 6, 5. We go for this to Numbers 22. Numbers 22, what God did for them in sparing the people from Balak and Balaam. Numbers 22. Numbers 22, 1. We'll read 1 to 20. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, So now Moab and Midian, two nations, conspire. Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pathor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. That's a key verse right there. They had the fees for divination. That is, these two kings gave Balaam a hefty sum of money to divine or to practice sorcery to curse Israel to pronounce a curse on Israel. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring the word, I will bring word to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me, perhaps... I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And the leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak again sent leaders, more numerous and more distinguished than the former. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing I beg you hinder you from coming to me, for I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. And Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. And now please, 
You also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. Balaam understands that he can only speak the word of God. In chapter 24, verse 2, it tells us why. 24-2, Numbers 24-2. And Balaam lifted his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God made Balaam pronounce the word of God, which was only a blessing for Israel, no curse. Though he was hired to curse them. Then, one more place, Joshua 24, Joshua 24, 9 and 10. Joshua 24, 9 and 10. Joshua recounts what happened in the days of Moses. 24, 9. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and summoned Balak, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. He had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. No free will to sin in the life of Balaam. The Holy Spirit made him pronounce a blessing. That's the kind of grace that God demonstrated to Israel, to millions of people in Israel. Millions. They all knew this. They all knew that the curses were all turned into a blessing because of God and the Spirit of God. Further indictment. Micah 6.6. Micah 6.6-7. It's best to take these words in Micah 6.6 and 7 to be the words of the people the words of those who hear the prophet Micah but still don't get it, who hear the words of the prophet but don't understand the gist, the main point of what God expects of them. If this is the words of the people, then it makes sense because we have the answer of God and the prophet of God in verse 8. The words of the people, the dull people in 6 and 7 and then the Answer to them in verse 8. Their words, the people's words. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Why are they asking that question? Should that have been an enigma to them? Was it ambiguous? Did Moses not teach them? Did Adam not teach Abel? Of course he taught Abel. They knew. Why are they asking this question? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Does God want all of these burnt offerings? Does he want thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Is that what God wants? Does he not have enough of these sacrifices? Is God hungry? Is God's belly that big? Is his appetite that insatiable? What does God want? Why is he, Why are they saying this? Don't they know? Of course they know. Moses prescribed it. Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, they already knew everything. They knew God's expectations. Yet they say here, 
Am I just not giving the right things, the right amount of things? Is God a malcontent? They are portraying God as a malcontent. Insatiable malcontent. And then they have the audacity to say, Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Should I offer my firstborn child, son, or daughter? Shall I offer my firstborn for my sins so that I can be saved for my soul, for the sin of my soul? Is that what God wants? No. He never said any of that. This is, this is, uh, this is the, the perfect example. This is the epitome of the misunderstanding of the people. The people think they just need to do a ceremony. They just need to do a ritual. They just need to do something religious. Show up, something with their hands, something with their money, something with sacrifices. God wants that. And then otherwise, God, just leave me alone and bless me. Just leave me alone and bless me. I did my religious duty, and now leave me alone. That's the mentality of the people, Old Testament and New Testament. Isaiah 1. Keep your place here in Micah 6 and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, 10. We'll read 10 to 20. Isaiah 1, 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of bloodshed. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. We'll read 30 to 34. Jeremiah 7, 30 to 34. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. He's talking about idols that they put in the house of the Lord. Verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my 
mind. They are sacrifices of their children to idols there in the high places of the valley. Verse 32, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the, the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. For the land will become a ruin. There's no way that God ordained sacrificing children to him. It, he did not command it and it did not come into his mind. He didn't even think of that. Well, we said this, that this is a New Testament sin too, that people think rituals can do it, but rituals can't. Giving a sacrifice to God will do it, but it can't. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, they had sold a piece of property and they lied about its sale price to the apostles. They lied about the sale price of their property. They gave some to the church and they could have given whatever they wanted to give, but they just lied. The main issue, the sin, was that they lied about the sale price. And they pretended and lied to the apostles. Pretended to the church and lied to the apostles. What happened to them for lying? Verse 1, Acts 5, 1. But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They presented a sacrifice, a gift to the church, but they lied about it. They shouldn't have lied. They can bring whatever amount they want, but they lied. Isn't lying against the Ten Commandments applicable after the day of Pentecost? Certainly, Acts 5 is an example of that. Sacrifices mean nothing if you're lying in the midst of bringing the sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Lest someone say, 
That was just in the apostolic period when the apostles had miraculous power to do things like that, but it does not apply today. Yes, it does apply today. 1 Corinthians 11, 27. 27 to 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. The people partook in an unworthy manner. They did not judge themselves first before God judged them, so God judged them and caused some of them, to, a number of them to die and many to become weak and sick because they partook of the ritual without repenting of sin. Sin, breach of the Ten Commandments in some way, one way or another. That's what they did, which showed that they weren't loving God, so God punished them in this way. Practicing the ritual, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, but not repenting. None of this should be a surprise to anybody. Should not be a surprise to anybody. Micah 6.8. Micah says so. He has told you, O man, what is good. Why are you asking these questions, men? He has told you, O man, what is good. O man, you should know what the great God of heaven has said. You should know, because he already told you what he expected of you. And what does the Lord require of you? He told you what he requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He summarized what he expects of you. He expects justice, he expects, expects love, and he expects humility before God. That's what he wants. Love, justice, or in this case his order is justice, love, and humility. A humble faith in God, which means it would be a humble faith in God's word, following his word, walking in a humble way following God's word. He has told you. When did he first tell him? Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a recap of what God expects of them. But even in this book, we have a summary of it in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And even the question that Micah asks the way he says it, is echoing Moses right here. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? What does he require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. There's the summary right there. Moses already told them. Hosea told them in Hosea 6, 6. 
Hosea told them in Hosea 6.6, 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Christ our Lord quoted this in Hosea 6.6, 6, in Matthew 9.13. And he told his enemies, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If people understood that basic principle, that would show that they are true believers in God. But when they don't understand that principle, it shows they're not true believers in God. Now we come to verses 9 to 16. In 9 to 16, God explains their sins and the certainty of his punishment against their sins. The certainty of punishment against their sins. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord will call to the city. Now this voice of the Lord is the voice of Micah preaching now in the city. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Sound wisdom to fear the name of God. Every other chapter in the book of Hebrews is teaching us to fear God. Every other chapter. Micah's teaching them to fear God. And by fear God, we're not saying in the diluted sense. In the diluted sense, people say fear God means respect Him. Yes, God. You know, just be mindful of him. But in modern Christianity, fear God excludes trembling before him, excludes fear of his punishment against our sin, and it excludes anticipation of the day of judgment. In modern Christianity, fear of God excludes all of those. But we cannot let it exclude all of those. Because in preparation for the day of judgment, we must be godly. If we're not godly, then we have rotten fruit. We either have good fruit or rotten fruit. Fear of God. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address his Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay, Upon earth. And then in 18 to 21, he reminds us of God's grace. Why should we live that way? Because of God's grace, what he did for us in Christ. We see in 16 also that in order to prove that we should be holy, he says, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is taken from Leviticus 11 44 and 45. People say the book of Leviticus is inapplicable today. 
but not according to the Apostle Peter. And Peter wrote this after the day of Pentecost, after Acts chapter 2, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, after the birth of the, the church that would spread to the Gentiles. He's saying, be holy. And also God as a father is an impartial judge. He didn't call God grandfather. He called him father, the one who impartially judges. A father impartially judges. A good father does. Our heavenly father does. So our father is our impartial judge, according to Peter. This is the sound wisdom that everyone should have. If they don't have this sound wisdom to fear the name of God, they don't know God. And also he says, Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Now what time does he mean that has been appointed? He's talking about the day of judgment. The day of judgment. Acts 10.42 calls God the judge of of the living and the dead, Acts 10.42. We saw already in Acts 17, 30-31, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, having appointed a man and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has appointed a day of judgment and appointed the judge on the day of judgment. In Acts 10, Peter preached it to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, who should get ready for the day of judgment. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul preached it to the Greeks, the Athenians, the Gentiles, that they might get ready for the day of judgment. And in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, he says this to... Felix, the Roman, and Drusilla, his wife, a Jewess. A Roman and a Jew. Verse 25, 24-25. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Preaching righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. We see here that the apostle preached it even though Felix was frightened. People say you shouldn't talk about the day of judgment because it's going to frighten people. Well, we're supposed to frighten people. We're supposed to do it. Paul didn't sin here. He's commended for doing it, even though Felix was frightened. Actually, a few days ago, a pastor told me, that he first, when he is about to preach the gospel, he first says that God is our creator to an unbeliever. God's our creator and desires a relationship with us. I said, they already know God is creator. They need to know about the day of judgment. That's why I start with, have you thought about death and the day of judgment? And what's going to happen to you because of your sins? Are you forgiven of sins in Christ? We have to talk about judgment. Everybody knows in their heart that God is creator. We don't need to convince them. If they start lying to us, we need to call out their lie and say, you're lying, you know in your heart that God created you. Now, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, here too, he's saying that there is an appointed time of judgment. 
verse 9. Okay, then their sins and God's punishment. Let's read, read them again, and then we will see these explained elsewhere. Verse 10. Is there yet a man in the wicked house along with the treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? He said, he's speaking about where are the wicked men of the house because in this house they have treasures and they have a short measure, meaning they use their scales, they use their instruments of measurement to cheat people. So where are the people now? Verse 11, can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? When people have a balance in the marketplace and the balance is an incorrect balance, it shows the customer that he just um, purchased a pound of potatoes, but actually on the other side, the vendor, he knows, actually it's, uh, it's three-fourths of a pound. It's not one pound, it's three-fourths of a pound. That's the kind of deceit they were practicing here in verse 11. Verse 12, for the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The rich men exploit the poor men, the poor weak men with violence because the rich men have weapons, the rich men have walls, the rich men have security guards, the rich men have money to hire thugs, gangsters, the rich men have that to get what they want in the city, to exploit the people who don't have those things. Her residents, now everyone in the city, speak lies, full of lies. Those who speak lies are of the devil, John eight forty four. Everything they do is full of lies and deceit. They deserve what they're about to get. What are they going to get? Verse 13. So also, I will make you sick striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. I'm going to desolate you. I'm going to make you sick. I'm going to strike you down because of your sins. It's not unjustifiable punishment. It's justifiable punishment. It's righteous judgment from God. Verse 14, you will eat, but you will not be satisfied. They're going to eat, but not have enough food to eat to be satisfied in their stomach. Your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. Whatever they try to preserve and protect, God's going to deliver up, deliver over to their enemies. That's what will happen. It says there, I will give to the sword. The wicked foreigners, they don't know God. They worship idols. But God will raise them up, stir up their spirit to bring their sword into their land, into the land of Israel or the land of Judah, in order to punish the people. Verse 15, you will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil, and the grapes, but you will not drink wine. You will sow, but not reap. You're going to sow. You're going to do all the hard work of sowing or planting seed and fertilizing it and making sure it has enough water. You're taking care of the ground, pulling its weeds out, 
right? You're doing everything you're supposed to do. You're going to work hard in sweat and labor all day long. But at the time of harvest, you won't get any of it. None of it. Then when you do have olives and grapes to tread, you won't be able to anoint yourself with oil. You can't apply the oil on you, enjoy the oil of olives for refreshment. You can't do that. You can't even drink the wine of grapes because when they drink wine, they celebrate the new wine. They celebrate the harvest by drinking wine. You're not going to have a party of celebration. You're not going to have that anymore because I'm going to take it all away from you. And who did they listen to? Who did they obey? It says in verse 16, the statutes of Omri, the works of the house of Ahab, are observed. They obey these two very wicked kings instead of obeying God. Why obey the wicked kings and shake off the yoke of God? Isn't God's yoke isn't his load light and his yoke easy, according to Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30? Yes, it's easy compared to these evildoers. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. You see, my people should know, therefore my people are going to bear a reproach, and their reproach is going to be destruction and derision. You will be destroyed and your enemies will deride you. They will mock at you. That's what you deserve. You deserve to be destroyed and you deserve to be taken away. Now, the injustices that they commit, let's go back a couple of pages to Amos. Amos 8, 4 to 6. In terms of all of their violence and injustices. Amos 8, 4 to 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may buy grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat." They're actually thinking and saying these words that they want to cheat and they want to buy helpless people, needy people for a cheap price. They're actually saying this. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, James chapter 5, verse 1. James 5, 1. 5.1. One to six. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
you have condemned and put to death the righteous man, he does not resist you. Rich people exploiting the poor, withholding wages from laborers, fattening themselves. They're only fattening themselves like fat pigs for the day of slaughter. Pigs, domestic pigs, are meant not to continue living and living and living. They are meant for slaughter. They are meant for the day of slaughter. And evildoers like this, they are pigs prepared for the day of slaughter because they exploit others. And God will punish them. We also spoke of Omri and Ahab. Omri and Ahab. Let's see 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings 16. The whole section would be 1621 to 34. 1621 to 34. But I would like to highlight a couple of verses here. First on Omri, which is verse 25. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. More wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. He behaved more wickedly than his predecessors, followed the evil Jeroboam who made Israel sin. The evil king makes the people do evil. The sinful king makes the people become sinful. He made Israel sin. Ahab did the same, verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He outdid his father Omri. Ahab did. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Etbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. This is what he did. He not only practiced Jeroboam's sin worse than his own father, and his father was worse than his predecessors, so now Ahab is the worst of them all, He not only practiced those sins, but he also worshipped Baal because he married Jezebel, who was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. He married a pagan woman and worshipped her gods too, Baal and Ashtaroth. That's what he did. Evil Ahab. Okay, then their sins... Does, do, do their sins deserve the wrath of God Almighty? Do their sins deserve the wrath of God Almighty? I'd like to read one more passage from Deuteronomy 28. This is God telling the people, and for the sake of time, because of, of this passage that we will read, this is also taught in the New Testament. We've already read some verses from the book of Revelation about Christ punishing and the book of Acts that there is a day of judgment. This is the same kind of thing that God does now, but will ultimately do on the day of judgment. Why? We're going to see why right in the middle of this verse. Remember, we started our, our lesson by saying that they were ungrateful 
they were, had ingratitude toward the grace of God. Okay? Now, Deuteronomy 28, 27. This passage is a horrifying passage. It's one of the most horrifying passages in all of Scripture. 28, 27. Because of their sins. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you shall grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall violate her. You shall build a house, but you shall not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not use its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you shall have none to save you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes shall look on and yearn for them continually. But there shall be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you shall never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. And you shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and legs with sore boils, from which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you shall set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. And you shall become a whore, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord will drive you. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you shall gather in little. For the locust shall consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall have sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees, and the produce of your ground. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you shall go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things 
Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord shall send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth. As the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. A nation of fierce countenance who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine, or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. And it shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your body, the the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy shall oppress you. The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain, so that he will not give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he shall eat, since he has nothing else left. During the siege and the distress by which your enemy shall oppress you in all your towns. The refined and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement, shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes, and toward her son and daughter, and toward her afterbirth, which issues from between her legs, and toward her children, whom she bears. For she shall eat them secretly, for lack of anything else, during the siege and the distress by which your enemy shall oppress you in your towns. They practiced sin, and now God punishes them for their sin. And what did they not do? It says in 45, they would not obey. They would not keep his commandments. They wouldn't do that. And they would not be grateful. They would not be joyful in the abundance of all things, for the abundance of all things, verse 47. They were ungrateful and disobedient. Ungrateful and disobedient. That's what Micah described in chapter 6. An ungrateful and disobedient people who deserve to be punished with the wrath of God because they didn't realize. He told them. He made it very simple to them. Humble faith Humbly walk before your God, do justice, and do kindness. That's what he expects in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.